1: morning and welcome to the Total Soccer (laughs) Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell and we are here to break down or at least discuss to the best of our ability the USA's 1-1 draw on the road at El Salvador in the CONCACAF Nations League. That was a lot of detail. It's already Wednesday over here but joining me from Tuesday aka the West Coast is Joe Lowry. Hi Joe. Taylor, you actually hurt my brain
2: with that introduction. Like, yes, it it is Tuesday. I know how time works, definitely. I, I totally understand how time works. But it is kind of wild to me that it's Wednesday for you, it's Tuesday for me. Either way, it's very, very late for the folks that are staying up to watch or stayed up to watch this CONCACAF Nations League game. I can't decide, Taylor Rockwell, if they made a good call or a bad call. I think they made a good call. I was entertained, but not maybe in the traditional way that you'd like to be entertained by a soccer game.
1: No, absolutely not. And that's where I think it's worth noting up front. There's not a ton I think we can take away from this game. I think there are some individual performances that are worth discussing. I think the overall response and some of the tactical flexibility are worth getting into. But I think with the conditions, with the kind of situation of the Nations League, I'm not sure this was the prettiest game for U.S. fans. But I think in the end, the result and some of the drama on and off the pitch uh, was was pretty entertaining. Joe, I know my introduction was confusing. Using for you another one that may have been confusing that wet dirt stuff it's called mud it's what happens <laughs> when it rains unceasingly I know that's a foreign concept in your state where they don't allow precipitation did you enjoy that spectacle that the elements provided or did you end up spending too much time t- time trying to figure out who it was that was like under those jerseys <laughs> under all that mud I mean
2: it, it was difficult at times honestly to track who everyone was on the field because everybody just kind of looked brown and muddy, which is what they were. Uh, Taylor, I'll have you know, first of all, that the Arizona monsoon season goes hard. So we do get rain occasionally, but still, we don't really have a lot of water out here in the desert. So I I do understand some of the confusion there, and I I at times get confused by what that wet stuff is. But still, this is such a weird game, and and you mentioned it. We can't draw... A ton of conclusions. Like, we're not going to draw any real sweeping team-wide conclusions about this game. That's just not a smart thing to do. These Nations League games in general, I think, have been pretty brutal World Cup prep tests for this U.S. team. That Granada game that that you and Felipe talked about was pretty rough in a completely different way. The field was fine, but the quality of the opponent wasn't so good. And in this game, the quality of the opponent is a little bit better. and, And you can get tested on the road in El Salvador. Of course you can. But the field made this game just a a real, actual slog. So in in the games leading up to this one in San Salvador, in the days leading up to this one in San Salvador, there was tons of rain. So rain, really rainy, cloudy, overcast, muggy, super humid. That was the forecast leading into this game. And then it just rained all game long. And also there was like metal on the field, according to yeah. Stephen Goff. There had been some sort of concert, which I, I joked about this. Well, it was a terrible joke. But in a, in a quick reactions piece that I wrote for Backfield, that I, I desperately hope it was a metal concert at the very least. If you're leaving metal on the field, I mean, yeah. at least make that make that connection, somebody. But, man, the field was awful. Like like one of the worst fields I've seen in a professional soccer game in a very, very long time, which, as we've already said multiple times, makes it very difficult to talk about this game in a ton of macro detail
1: agree. And yet I would say that if you I had a buddy ask me this, if you sort of knew going into this game that on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the worst, that the field conditions were going to be a 10, that the housery, so to speak, in the second half especially, <laughs> was going to be a 10, and yet the U.S. still ended up getting a draw – And the away, or excuse me, the opposition goal came basically from a howler, I would argue. I think that there are positives in there. I think there's a positive way to see that. Um, And so I think the Jordan Morris equalizer is very exciting and very fun. Yeah, a very fun way to end, especially given the red cards for both teams. I think solid performances and some not so solid ones. We've seen four games now in this window. Joe, are you feeling ready to talk about the US World Cup roster tomorrow?
2: Oh, yeah, Taylor. What a transition into a pitch for the show we're doing tomorrow for Bleacher Report. So, Taylor, you and I are going to be live in the Bleacher Report app at noon Eastern time. That's noon Eastern time to pick our roster for the U.S.'s World Cup. So, I I think we're going to go through position by position. We're going to talk about key players. We're going to build out that 26-man squad, and then we're going to build our starting lineup as well. Again, that's going to be live in the Bleacher Report app at 12 p.m. Eastern time. I tweeted out a link from the TSS account earlier today, So go check the link and get ready for us in that BR app. I think it's going to be fun, Taylor. It is a natural point right now in the discourse for this U.S. team to talk about what comes next. And we don't know a ton yet about the September window, but we've gone through and learned a lot. Even with these these suboptimal tests in the Nations League, I think we've still learned a lot about this U.S. team in this window. And so it is a really good spot, a good breaking point to look ahead to November and think about what this U.S. team might look like. And and we obviously know the opponents now. We have the full group. The full World Cup feel is set, all 32 teams. So it's a great time to start looking ahead, and that's exactly what we're going to do tomorrow. Or today for you, I should say,
1: Taylor. (laughs) Yes, thank you for that. Uh, We will get into that. We will get into big-picture takeaways on this episode in a minute. Uh, But I'm sort of of the mind that Berhalter, we now know that the squad size will be 26 players. I'm inclined to think that he knows – certainly a majority of those players if not almost all of them or has a strong feeling towards certain players and and so i think some of these nations league games weren't necessarily opportunities for players to prove themselves, I, it feels like, if anything, it was an opportunity to kind of maintain the status quo. And maybe a couple people improved their st- their standing. But I think more so it was an opportunity for certain players to maybe show that they weren't quite at the level or, or maybe need to do a little bit more between now and the start of the World Cup. But that is a conversation for later in this episode and then tomorrow slash today. That's going to get confusing really quickly. Joe, let's talk about something maybe slightly less confusing Instead of the big picture start and the kind of overall tactical approach, because tough to tell in this one, did you have a favorite moment from this game? If not individual performance, but just a, a moment, a dribble, a shot, uh, a fight, a scrap, whatever it may have been, was there one thing that you liked more than others?
2: It was scrappy. Man, this game was scrappy. This, this was CONCACAF turned up to 11, as I think some of these Nations League games have been for other teams in the CONCACAF region. Taylor, my favorite moment really is Yunus Musa driving the ball forward and then getting the ball to Jesus Ferreira and then getting it behind the back line and drawing a red card. So to set the scene a little bit, the U.S. had gone down to 10 men earlier in the second half with a red card on Paul Areola, which... ah, I don't really have a strong stance on if it was a red card or not. Either way, the US goes down to 10. There's no VAR. And so they're playing at a one-man deficit. And Yunus Musa takes it upon himself to basically just boss this game. Weston McKenney did this as well in the second half. I think those two players were two of the brightest and best performers for the US in this game. But it's after the US is down to 10, Musa gets on the ball. He then makes an off-ball run in behind. Ferreira plays it to him, and Musa just. Forces uh, an opposing defender to drag him down. So, in order to prevent Musa from getting in behind, El Salvador take the red card. And Musa, it's just one of a number of sequences from this game, Taylor, where Musa really just put the U.S. on his shoulders, which he's done over and over again in this entire window. He's done it in the past for the U.S. as well. Taylor, he looked like, Eunice Musa looked like to me in this game, a youth player. Who was just way better than all the other youth players? You see that at times. And I think about this all the time with Alfonso Davies when he was in MLS playing against other players and, and he was with the Vancouver Whitecaps. Davies just looked like that winger who was so much more skillful and so much more athletic than anyone on the field. Musa kind of did that same thing tonight. He didn't do that in every phase of play, but man, when he had the ball at his feet, he was awesome tonight, Taylor.
1: He absolutely was. And the the engine to back it up is another thing that stood out to me from his performance. Maybe we'll just go straight into talking about how great Yunus Musa is. But there are moments in the final 15 or 20 minutes, especially before the United States equalizes, when it, he's in kind of 1v1 situations with his back to goal, or he, he kind of picks it up deep, or, or any number of, of scenarios in which he could have taken a touch or dribbled back or played the safe ball or whatever it may have been. And I love that he would turn and try to go or try to get around players or beat them 1v1 or even just kind of faint left, turn right, and then play the ball forward. He did that so many times in the first and second halves of of sort of turning under pressure and playing the ball forward. But it's that that extra energy to then dribble with the ball, to carry it forward at pace, under pressure against tired opposition, or even in some cases with substitutions, fresher opposition. He still was able to get by them. Anthony Robinson did the same thing. And that can be that momentum shifter. It can change things when... You think you've got everybody contained, and you and they haven't taken their chances. In the United States, and okay, this is going to be a one-nil result if we just keep things as they are. But when you have those individual performers still trying to create, still trying to get something going, uh, and that was Eunice Musa multiple times in the second half, especially, it was sort of the difference maker for me. So I think that's a great shout for Eunice Musa as uh, your favorite moment, Joe.
2: He was just so strong on the ball. He drove the ball forward well. Taylor, you you detailed some of that already. I also enjoyed some of his passes in this game. He has a Mm -hmm. switch in the first minute over to Reggie Cannon, which Cannon doesn't do all that well with. And maybe it wasn't the perfect moment for that switch. But still, you could see early early on in this game, Musa being willing to get the ball off of his foot. There were a couple other moments in this game. He has a good drive forward in the ninth minute on the dribble and then plays the ball off to Christian Pulisic. It's a good sequence and a good time to release the ball. There were a handful of those. The 31st minute, he's driving forward again and finds Pulisic. And that leads to the Haji Wright shot. So, over and over again in this game, we were seeing Musa not just progress the ball in the dribble, which I think is a really sound attacking strategy for a game when the field is as choppy as it was today against El Salvador, yesterday against El Salvador. I think that makes a ton of sense, but he wasn't just over, over-reliant on his ball progression through the dribble, but he was also getting rid of the ball, which I thought
1: was really valuable in this game. Agreed. And that variety just makes him so much more difficult to defend against, to game plan against. Because if you're sort of setting up to limit his ability to make those Musa maneuvers and go on 50-yard runs, that's fine. He can still turn and play those passes into feet and does so with with pretty precise accuracy, in my opinion. And so then if you try to shape up to stop him from passing, he can carry forward or he can do the kind of quick one-twos that we've seen. And I think he just brings a level of variety to that midfield that is so important, even if he wasn't able to get on the score sheet and he had some great chances. He had three uh, well-taken shots, all of which were saved, but I think for at least two of them, he created those opportunities like solely on his own or maybe with a little bit of combination play, but for the most part, it was him as an individual. And I think that leads to my favorite part of this game uh, was the equalizer, shocker, but more specifically, the celebration afterwards, because... I think the Equalizer itself made me so happy because I've played in these games and that's at obviously at amateur level, but I think to some extent there is a universal reality of when you just start to feel like it's not our day, we're not going to get these these shots into the back of the net, that there's going to be saves, there's going to be deflections, there's going to be missed calls by the official, it's just not going to happen and you can start to get your head down and I think the U.S. did at the end of the first half There were just moments when they weren't stepping the way they had. They weren't playing the ball as quickly as they had. They were sort of content to drop off and sit and not have to take risks, not have to play risky balls. And with the way the game played out, with the conditions and the physicality and the housery, I think there's another reality in which the U.S. just sort of takes their foot off the gas, makes some substitutions and sees it out. And oh, well, there's not much we could have taken away from this. But instead... There's the fight, almost literally there are fights, but then the way the entire team celebrates an equalizer on the road against El Salvador in the CONCACAF Nations League and Burhalter running over to say, like, let's go again, like clearly scenting blood in the water. I, that felt like a very important moment to me I don't think we'll learn a ton of about this team from the tactics of this game or any sort of nuances of it, but I think the fight and the spirit was there, and I have to believe that that sort of unifies a bit to have everybody fighting for that belief and fighting for that result and ultimately getting a draw. Not the ideal result against El Salvador, but I think still pulling one back after the red cards and everything else made me very, very happy, certainly happier than I was in the minute before the ball went in. It's good to get a result.
2: Right? It's good yep. to get a result, and, and it would be even better if this team had gone down to El Salvador and just played El Salvador off the field. And we're still waiting for a U.S. team that's really going to take charge of CONCACAF. That that hasn't happened, and it didn't happen in World Cup qualifying, and it's probably not going to happen in this Nations League cycle either. And I'm not saying that the conditions were perfect for the U.S. to do that tonight. They just weren't. That was never going to happen. But still, we're we're waiting for, for something like that to happen, or at least for the U.S. to get closer to that point where they are controlling games on the road in CONCACAF, I think they can do it with the talent they have on a field that isn't a cow pasture, right? There's opportunity there, (laughs) but still, it is good to see this team get a result, right? I mean, there is something to be said for the U.S. going on the road and getting a result in CONCACAF. There is something to be said for that being a building block for this U.S. team as they continue to go and play more of those difficult kinds of games. Now, I don't know how good of an exercise this is as as a playing Metric for the World Cup in Qatar, right? The the atmosphere is going to be different. The weather is going to be totally different. The fields are going to be different. But still, there is something to be said. I think for being in that position of needing a late goal, and just saying, yeah, we've been there before, right? I mean, and the U.S. has been there before a number of times. But we've been there before recently. Hey, remember that game back in June where we where we clawed back and got a late goal from Jordan Morris? I mean, players are going to remember that stuff. I think that's a valuable moment and a good one to pick out from this game, Taylor. Both for the sequence itself, I mean, it's a good header from Jordan Morris, but really for mm-hmm. the moments after and kind of what it says about this young group.
1: Yeah, because you're right. That like Qatar, I can't imagine the last time a World Cup game or like a World Cup final was played on a pitch that looked like that. Like I would, ha, I would assume it's back in the 50s, like the first World Cup, maybe, and even there, they spent a lot of money to get that field looking good. So I don't know if that prepares us for a realistic scenario in Qatar but i th- and so i don't know even how many of the individual moments will end up standing out but i think there, there has to be a little bit of belief and a little bit of team spirit to come out of that one. Even just from the backing each other, and and when there are the kind of pushing and shoving matches, I like on the replays. You can see everybody comes sprinting in, and maybe that's not always smart. If you're Weston McKinney, shoving people into the into like kind of the not quite the face, not quite the neck, but in an area that could have been maybe slightly more policed with uh, VAR, but obviously no VAR in this game. But still. It just seemed like the team spirit was there, the belief was there, the fight was there, and I think that's all you can kind of ask for in a game like this. But we will talk about what else we could have asked for uh, in just a moment, including the formations, the starting lineups, and then the changes at halftime. But, Joe, let's take one quick break to hear from today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based, live customer service from Discover... FX is welcome to Wrexham, all new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. We are back. Joe Lowry, we had our starting 11. Shock of all shocks. We went with 11 players. I know that's a bit controversial, but it's what Greg Berhalter went for. Stu Holden, doing the broadcast for this one, liked that Christian Pulisic started and was the captain. Uh, Stu talked about not babying Pulisic and sort of sending him out there to lead by example. Do you agree with that? Did you like the relative strength of this starting 11 for Greg Berhalter? I mean, I don't think you're
2: babying Christian Pulisic by not playing him in this sort of sequence, but still, I like the fact that the U.S. went for it in this game with the lineup. There were a lot of quality players on the field, or at least there were a lot of relatively close to first-choice guys, if not first-choice guys on the field. And I like that, right? This is the third-to-last game you get before the World Cup. I think there is absolutely a reason to come in there and try to play the top guys to give them more reps. Again, I've said it a thousand times. It's unfortunate that the field wasn't better and that this wasn't a better test for this U.S. group. But still, I like the idea from Greg Berhalter to to run these guys out there. So it was Ethan Horvath in goal. It was Reggie Cannon at right back. Cameron Carter-Vickers as the right-sided center back. Aaron Long as the left center back. Jedi on the left, in that left back spot. Tyler Adams was at the six. Yunus Musa was playing. At least in possession in the first half, next to Tyler Adams in a 4 2 3 1, or they were at least in that double pivot together. Then you had Christian Pulisic as the number 10, and, and it really was a number 10 in a 4 2 3 1. He and Aronson, who was playing on the left wing, swapped positions later on in the second half for at least a stretch. You had some fluidity there, but really Pulisic starting this game as a number 10, Aronson on the left, Weah on the right, and Haji right up top. Taylor, I like the lineup. What did you think of this group?
1: Uh, I liked the adjustment, and I think in the broadcast they talked about how the U.S. had a plan A, and then they were willing to shift to plan B and did so really quickly. I would argue from my quick rewatch—because we did not give this one the full rewatch treatment—we will for other World Cup games, maybe not so much this Uh, one—but from my quick rewatch— It seemed like this was pretty much what they did from the start, that sort of 4-2-3-1 shape you talked about. The the only variation I saw was that sometimes it was Haji Wright trying to stretch that back line and being a semi-target man, but also then oftentimes dropping in and being the sort of facilitator with Christian Pulisic staying furthest forward and making those runs in behind and trying to stretch the back line. And I thought that was meant to give a bit of variety to the U.S.'s attack, and I'm not quite sure why they weren't able to get much more going in that first half, aside from the conditions, uh, which I do think are worth noting here. Uh, a coach of mine when I was when I was young uh, had what I would consider a famous line of great summary for this type of game, crap field, crap conditions, crap results. And I think the field conditions started bad and got worse. Joe, you already talked about the kind of torrential downpour turning into an absolutely torrential downpour at one point in the second half, but I think that meant you could see the U.S. taking fewer risks, and not necessarily when it came to the attack and trying to combine and trying to get good shooting chances, but the way they played safe and when they did, how safe some of those decisions were. Cameron Carter-Vickers, once in the first half, once in the second half, has a cross come in, he heads it, but I think you can see him Not quite back himself to get the kind of power header to get that ball clear. He doesn't want to risk making a mistake or having it skim off the top of his head. So he heads it out of bounds pretty directly for a corner kick. And there were just a lot of those sort of playing it safe, laying it off, not quite taking that adventurous opportunity, not playing that ball forward, but instead recycling possession and just slowing things down a bit. And I think that was all with an eye towards not giving up any silly mistakes, not giving anything too sloppily away and for the most part i think the us was able to do that but i do think it really limited their ability to commit to the attack and get numbers where they needed them to be
2: it's so difficult man i i guess i don't know if i put too much stock in those and i'm not saying you do either taylor i'm not i don't i don't know if i put too much stock in the us's chance creation issues in the first half and there there were chance creation issues right they didn't put up a ton of shots on goal it was really late or at least decently late in the first half before the us got their first shot at all But still, I mean, it's just a a very difficult situation to go out there and and really get much going in the attack. I will say, when three of your deepest players, or or maybe two of your deepest players, are Cameron Cutter-Vickers and Aaron Long, Long especially, I don't think was very good with his distribution tonight. And I think that's just a general theme of his, it's not who he is as a player, it's just not. And so... You don't get a ton of line-breaking balls. We talked about this even earlier on in this June window, Taylor. You don't get a ton of really precise ball progression from those players. And and we didn't see that tonight, really. Reggie Cannon at right back, I thought, really struggled in the first half. He was playing that straight-up right back role before switching to the right center back role in possession in the second half. And he had a couple of sloppy turnovers. He wasn't quite up to the speed of play. He got... Pulled around defensively and, and got played past defensively and got a yellow card in, in first half stoppage time for being behind the play and trying to get back in it to stop an attack. He was maybe a little slow to close down that tross that that ends up finding the back of Ethan Horvath's net. Just in general, I didn't think he was very good. And Jedi Robinson, we know, was a north-south kind of player. So the, the build-up platform wasn't really there for the U.S. in this game outside of Yunus Musa, who we've already covered. And he did a great job of, of really bridging that gap between defense and attack. But, yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't flawless for the U.S. I think there's very much a reason why in the second half things picked up a little bit for the U.S. men's national team. Jesus Ferreira is is going to be more involved. He's going to get more touches, and he was and did both of those things. Weston McKinney came on and played two of the best passes of the entire game. I think it was pretty clear that McKenney is going to be more actively engaged in possession in the midfield than Brendan Aronson. That's not really news at this point, but we certainly saw that on the field in this one. So I, I think there was a pretty clear distinction between first half and second half. And I also think there are some pretty clear reasons why the first half wasn't uh, just the, the best half of soccer you've ever seen in your life.
1: Yeah, especially since, at least for me multiple times in that first half I didn't want to say like every time but almost every time the U.S. was kind of charging forward with the ball it always felt like they were a clip away or just a little bit of contact away from a player going flying slamming into somebody we saw Pulisic get a a shove in the back off the ball that was very much deliberate and as a fan watching you're sort of hoping everybody stays healthy and thus far the reports seem to indicate that they did very worried that Tyler Adams had a broken forearm but you can play through that no big deal But I think if you're a player, certainly knowing that there's going to be clips and kicks and afters every single time, maybe that's part of the professional game. Maybe that's part of playing for the U.S. on the road in CONCACAF. But I think think it's fair to say that that's going to factor into your decision making. And if you're just anticipating contact and anticipating a kick or a shove or whatever it may be – That anticipation, by nature, means that you are, at the very least, not as focused as you would be on the actual play, on the actual on-the-ball movement, or whatever your decision-making may be, if you're dedicating brain capacity to, oh, I'm going to get kicked, i got to prepare my body for that one, or worrying about the contact that's about to arrive, you're like almost literally taking your eye off the ball, your eye off the attack. And so though the U.S. got fouled and it was a very physical game, and I think the U.S. gave it back pretty regularly as well, I sort of liked that spirit. I liked that fight. I know we don't want to get overly reactionary in some of that fight and end up getting cards, which the U.S. did, but I also think there's that time when you have to get up and shove back and throw people down. I like Tyler Adams basically suplexing somebody at one point and then doing his best not to react after the fact, knowing that there was going to be a very strong reaction from El Salvador. And so I think it it factored into the way the first half played out and the lack of fluidity and some of the kind of lack of chances, but I also think it showed, again, that competitive spirit that – uh, multiple people, myself included at times, have wanted to see from the United States on the road. And we didn't always see in World Cup qualifying, but I feel like we saw it tonight. So, Taylor, we've talked a little bit about this game so far. We've talked
2: about some of the antics, some of the conca what else did you pick out from this first half, or maybe even transitioning into the second half when we saw some tactical changes and some personnel changes from the U.S.?
1: Yeah, let's start with those changes because at halftime we get Weston McKinney subbing on and we get Jesus Ferreira subbing on. Now, the Weston yeah. McKinney one felt a bit pre planned. It felt like we're getting Brendan Aaronson a half. We don't yet know McKinney's full fitness and if he's ready to play a full 90. So we're going to give him that second half since he's coming back from injury. That one seemed pre-planned or at the very least explainable from that perspective the Haji Wright one for Jesus Ferreira I don't believe was part of the game plan no Uh, maybe Jesus Ferreira was always going to play a role at some point in this game but I I have a hard time believing that it was meant to be a halftime switch for Haji Wright who was getting his first start for the U.S. I think that change makes sense. He did not have many touches. He only had like four or five in the opening 20 or 25 minutes. Uh, he has that one great sort of dummy turn, dribble down the line, but that final ball lacking, cut out, whatever you want to go with, it doesn't end up finding Brendan Aronson, who is wide open centrally. Then there's the opportunity he has that he does really well to set up. It's sort of the, the slow down, speed up thing, where you draw the defender in, then you get that touch to get around them, but the shot isn't even saved. It's just put wide. And that has been a consistent thing both for Haji Wright and for Jesus Ferreira in this camp that every time they get that one-on-one or semi one-on-one with the goalkeeper you want to see them finish uh, confidently and calmly. Jesus Ferreira did get that one against uh, uh, Grenada but in this occasion we don't see Haji Wright finish and I I didn't think it was a, a great performance from him, a particularly strong performance from him. I don't know if it hurt his stock. I'm not really sure where his stock was with Greg Berhalter, but I think the, the halftime swap uh, tells me that he wasn't standing out in a positive way, put it that way.
2: Let me read you a quote, Taylor, that's floating around on Twitter from Greg Beralter about Haji Wright in this game. Uh-oh. Quote, it's always difficult when players get a chance and they don't capitalize on it. It's difficult mm. for the coaches and it's difficult for teammates. We thought he could be a force, but it just wasn't his night tonight. And then apparently the quote ended, or, or Beralter ended his comments on Haji Wright by saying, it doesn't rule Haji out for anything in the future, but we don't, well, we don't work like that. But it was an unlucky night for him. So I, I want to be clear. I don't know exactly what these comments mean from Greg Berhalter. I don't know exactly what part of of the night or the chance that he's referring to. I am pretty darn confident, Taylor, that it does not just refer to that missed moment in the 31st minute where the shot goes wide. You just described that. From everything we know about Greg Berhalter and how much he values expected goals and how much he's, he's just stayed patient with Jesus Ferreira throughout his scoring drought, even while he's racked up chance after chance, it would feel so Unbelievably out of character for me if Greg Berhalter was to to rule out Haji Wright based on that one moment. So I think, Taylor, this refers to just Haji Wright's performance in the first half in general. And I think I think at least part of it is is exactly what you said about him not getting on the ball enough or not being as precise, mm-hmm. maybe as the, as the US needed him to be with some of his movement off the ball. Because in terms of on the ball, when he had touches, he was good. I thought he had some good sequences in possession. He spun. You, I mean, you already talked about this. I don't need to go back into it. But I thought he had some good flashes. But I think in Berhalter's mind, there just weren't enough flashes tonight. Does that reasoning from that quote, Taylor, kind of square with you? Or do you have a different interpretation of Berhalter's comments?
1: No, I think I think you're probably dead on. Uh, because that does feel like a more direct appraisal from Greg Berhalter. And maybe that's because we're closer to the World Cup. But I think about other times when he has... When the U.S. has played poorly and he sort of maintains that actually we learned a bunch and there were some solid performances and we we were able to practice some things we haven't otherwise practiced. And I think you could have heard him say, you know, it was a tough night, there's the rain, there's the conditions, but he still was able to create some chances and he looked lively and we'll see what comes next. And that's a fairly nothing answer, but it's a nothing answer that national team managers and club managers uh, are very good at giving, that he chose not to. Maybe it's just it's just him being a bit more direct. Maybe I'm being, I don't know, too critical or reading too much into it. But I, I, I share your thoughts that that doesn't feel like it was just, oh, he had that miss or he failed to put it on frame. And so that's it. It seems like maybe that indicates that there were some other things he was asked to do or just combinations that weren't quite there. I do think we saw Burhalter a couple times throw those hands up in frustration when the ball got recycled backwards as opposed to out wide or or turning under pressure from Haji Wright uh, a couple times in that first half. And so, yeah, I think ultimately this was a performance from Wright that, like, again, I think he could have come in and scored and it would have been like, okay, that's great, but now we got to see what you do against stronger opposition. I don't think that there was a ton of positive that could have been gained for individuals in this one. It felt like it was mostly a... Maybe you can raise your stock a half percentage point, but ultimately it's about kind of keeping things as they were. And I think Haji Wright is one of the players that maybe didn't do that uh, tonight against El Salvador. And I I also believe Burhalter That that doesn't mean he's done with the national team. That doesn't mean that they won't be looking at him anymore. It just means that he had his opportunity to start. He didn't score. He didn't take the chances. Maybe he didn't facilitate play the way he was meant to. So now we got to look at other people and see who can catch form between now and the start of the World Cup. Not my favorite thing. Would have loved for him to kind of cement that status sure. or at least give us more to talk about, more to think about. And instead, I think what we end up with is that still seems like it's Jesus Ferrer as the number nine. And it still seems like there are some question marks after him in that depth chart.
2: Yep. I think, Taylor, in terms of players who raise their stock in this window, Jesus Ferreira weirdly is is one of those mm-hmm. guys. I mean, he didn't do anything in my mind, and it seems like in Beralter's mind, to lose that starting spot, which he very clearly has. And Haji Wright leaves camp not, I don't i don't want to say out of favor with Greg Beralter, but having not really impressed Greg Beralter on the field. So I, I don't know. I, I feel like all of the signs are pointing Jesus Ferreira's way and kind of all the luck is going his way too. There also is that whole thing about him moving consistently into goal-scoring chances, Jesus Ferreira, which he's really, really good at. And that is certainly not luck. But just in general, I think in terms of stock, players that raise their stock, Ferreira is one of them. I think Aaron Long is one of them, even though I don't think he was all that good tonight. Uh, I, I just think... He did enough, and, and really CCB and EPB didn't do enough to force their way past him and to really overcome the lack of familiarity that they have with Craig Peralta relative to Aaron Long. I think those players both did a lot. Taylor, are there other players for you that raised their stock, if not in this game or maybe in a, in a broader sense in this window, or players maybe on the flip side? Hmm. I know you've mentioned this is maybe a game that players could do more to hurt their stock than to actually yeah. raise it.
1: Yeah, uh, I will answer that. First, I will I will uh, echo what you said. I agree with you about Jesus Ferreira. I think he comes in, looks lively, he makes those runs off the last defender, uh, but also is there to kind of calm things down, get in between U.S. players and El Salvador- or Salvadorian players uh, when it was required and I thought had a, had a good enough performance in that second half. I agree with everything we've already said about Haji Wright. I... I mostly agree with you about Aaron Long. You already talked about his distribution. I I noted that when he's forced to play with his left foot, which he was because he was playing left center back at times in that second half, uh, once there's changes and CCV gets subbed out especially, I did not think his left foot distribution was great, and I didn't think his right footed distribution was particularly excellent either. I also, I talked about this with Felipe uh, in the previous game, but he had it again tonight. He gets bailed out, and it ends up being a foul, or maybe it was offside. But he has another moment when the ball is played to him. He is the last defender. He turns and then is kind of unsure if he wants to go back towards goal, if he wants to take that extra touch, if he wants to try to play a ball that wide or central to CCV. And in that delay, which I think is probably weather-related and conditions-related, he ends up getting knocked over. And I think the call is for offside because the player who did it kind of came back in from an offside position but if not for that, I don't know if that gets given as a foul. Maybe it does, but it's just another moment where it seems like he's holding the ball a little bit too long. There's that indecision there, and maybe some more reps. He is still coming back from that long-term injury. He's not back like fully, fully where we want him to be. So I agree with you that I think he didn't necessarily hurt his stock, but I still have some concerns about Aaron Long if he's the starter. But I think... In contrast with CCV, a player that I I defended when you talked about him sort of getting caught in no man's land on that one header against, was it Morocco? Yeah, it was in that first game of the window. But he did it again tonight. In the second minute, he has an almost identical moment where he gets caught in no man's land. He's sort of paying attention to one attacker, but there's another one sort of in between him, uh, and I think it was Anthony Robinson. Uh, and, And he is not really sure which one to go to or if he's supposed to attack the ball, and instead he ends up doing None of them, and it kind of goes over his head, and nothing comes of it, but it's another moment where he misreads a header, and I thought his distribution also wasn't the kind of, like, that next level that we would like to see, so I I don't think he hurt himself fully, but I think, to your point, he didn't really move above Aaron Long in that center back depth chart ranking, it probably is, if we're starting a World Cup tomorrow, it's probably Zimmerman and Long, unless Richards comes back and gets healthy and then we get some more reps with him. But I think from a familiarity standpoint, it's probably those two center backs. Uh, the other player who I thought maybe didn't help himself so much is Ethan Horvath. And it's it's harsh because you called it a schross, uh, what ends up being the goal, I think, most uh, Mo it's and probably just uh, a cross.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Mo, Mo and Alexei were were pretty adamant it was a shot. The way he hits it with the power behind it, I, I'm not really sure if I feel one way or the other. But I'm I'm okay with saying that it was a deliberate uh, strike on target with Ethan Horvath sort of taking a questionable position and maybe it's it's harsh to to like be overly critical of him maybe we shouldn't draw too much from just one mistake but he has had previous he's had a howler for the u.s before and i'm sort of reminded this is a weird comparison to draw joe are you a fan of top chef at all i feel like you're a top chef fan but maybe 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 uh not a show that you've watched from the beginning since i think you were like zero when it started
2: taylor i am a cooking show guy but i have not seen top chef i'm sorry
1: That's okay, Uh, But Tom Colicchio, one of the judges I remember talking about once you get to the later rounds, how though it's edited to make it seem like there are these huge swings in the quality of the dishes, he was basically saying ultimately it comes down to like there was a tiny bit too much salt in that one. And that's the difference. And those are the margins you're dealing with once you're getting to these final, I guess, rounds of Top Chef. But in this case, these final games before the World Cup, those mistakes like, maybe if you have a year or two before the World Cup, you've got time to for people to forget them and to move on and improve your game, but I think because he's had the howler previously, then he has this, I would say, mistake on the night, and then even in other moments just looked inconsistent, Ethan Horvath. There's the very last moment, the last note I have is uh, the 90 plus fifth minute. Uh, he tries to play an outlet pass to, I believe, Reggie Cannon, and hits it too hard and hits it too wide, and it goes out for a throw-in, and... When the U.S. is pressing, and as we talked about, it's They're saying, let's go again, we can make something happen, and it seemed like there was an opportunity there. That just kind of killed the momentum, and I think El Salvador happy to take their time to get that throw in. When they do, full-time whistle, and away we go. And I just think there were moments like that combined with that goal that really hurt Ethan Horvath's stock tonight. I have a hard time putting him above Sean Johnson, certainly, uh, now that we've seen that performance.
2: Yeah, it's not the game that Ethan Horvath needed, right? This was his one game of the four. Turner had two, Johnson had one. This was his moment. I think this was a chance for Horvath to stake his claim and say, hey, I I should still be one of the three goalkeepers for this U.S. team at the World Cup. And he, he didn't really do that. I don't... I personally don't know that tonight should be enough to rule Horvath out. It seems like that might be a little reactionary. Goalkeepers make mistakes. Goodness knows Zach Steffen has made plenty of them. Sean Johnson's mm. made a few in the past of course with with both club and country really. Matt Turner, you know, didn't play well against Canada in that away game in Hamilton back in World Cup qualifying against Canada. Goalkeepers aren't perfect and, and this was very clearly an off night for Ethan Horvath. But just in terms of the narrative and, and really the timing of this off night for Ethan Horvath, it's not good for him. He has the, the sequences you've already talked about, Taylor. But then another one that really stands out to me is he's too hesitant to come claim the ball. It, it's when Cameron Carter-Vickers yes. is coming towards the near post, and it's, it's sort of his man that's shifted over that side, and Tyler Adams is a little behind the play in the aftermath of a set piece. And either way, El Salvador worked the ball to the right side of the box And it looks like Horvath has a chance to just come claim the ball. Like, he can just get in and use his hands. Yeah, he needs to be careful not to take out the player. But he had a window, it looked like to me, and I'm not a goalkeeper, but it really seemed to me that he had a chance to go in and claim that ball off the ground. And he just didn't. He stood, and I think he caused more chaos in that sequence than he needed to, and he could have played that situation differently. And it was that moment, compounded with the El Salvador goal, compounded with some of the moments on the ball and other issues where he just looked hesitant tonight, And I think tonight, of all nights, was a really bad time for Ethan Horvath to look hesitant.
1: Yeah, because I think in a game like this, you don't want to have to look back and see your goalkeeper and just think, like, ah, he looks uncomfortable, he doesn't look so happy. I I don't know how to about that one. Like, you want your goalkeeper to be back there screaming instructions in the torrential downpour. And so I guess the way I see it is basically that... I think Beralter is trying to decide between Turner and Stefan, or at least that's my read on the situation. And so this was maybe an opportunity for Horvath like like maybe oversimplifying it, but it's essentially like I know who my might like my one of my two in some order are going to be. maybe it's Ethan Horvath who slides in as the number three goalkeeper. Maybe he does bring some calm and some chemistry to this team. And I think tonight didn't help him raise his stock. And so it ends up being the same two who are there. And then we'll see who else kind of fits in as that third uh goalkeeper, potentially. Uh, but I feel like we, we've spent enough time harping on poor Ethan Horvath, who... Looked completely dejected as that ball went in. He just hung his head. Couldn't even get a dive. Like, you want to see him get the dive in, if for no other reason than because you don't then have to see him standing there with his head hanging down, looking all sad. Uh, But we will talk about some other individual performances in just a moment. First, one more break to hear from our sponsors today.
0: This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
1: All right, Joe. Uh, when last we were discussing the U.S., you asked me who else I thought had a, a solid or a negative performance. I would say, uh, briefly, Tim Wea, I thought had... Maybe his most frustrating performance I've seen from him in a U.S. shirt in a while. Not even saying he had a bad game. I just think it was inconsistent in the wrong moments. He has that one opportunity, one V one where I, you, I think Stu Holden said it, I would agree. You can just see him not be quite sure what he wants to do. And he ends up sort of trying to do two things at once, get stuck in a way, uh, El Salvador go. And so I didn't think it was a bad night for him, but I think I will ultimately completely forget that he played this game. And that is definitely not what you want from your wide attacker in the build up to a world cup. Uh, in contrast, I thought, This was a very strong performance from Anthony Robinson. I continue to have concerns about his crossing, uh, but I also think some of that is negated or at least balanced out by my guess is that the instruction because of the field and the rain was don't even worry about trying to pick somebody out. Just hit the ball as hard as you can and hit it low and then see what chaos is created. So I think that explains why some of the crossing was fairly erratic, but from start to finish, he is fighting for everything. He is working for every loose ball. Similar to Yunus Musa, when he wins it back, he will then carry it forward 30 yards instead of just kind of passing it long and then catching his breath. I, I love that Anthony Robinson scraps for everything, fights for everything, wants the ball, wants to create, and also just wants to let people know he's there. Uh, he has one in the first half when I forget who it is. I think it is Reyes who he maybe steps on it's basically 50-50 Robinson steps in front wins the ball puts it out for a throw in but maybe gets Reyes as well Reyes of course does the like full 360 spin in the air and then grabs his feet and Robinson just gives him that like perfectly professional slap in the back while he's on the ground that is definitely not friendly uh, but is not aggressive enough to warn a card or any sort of talking to but you can see him say like you're fine and give him a pat like it's it's uh it's the same tone I would use with my daughter when she's decided she can't walk anymore. It's like you're fine, get up, let's keep going. Uh and I like that Anthony Robinson had that approach. So I thought he was another one who stood out in a positive way in a fairly difficult uh atmosphere and conditions. Can I
2: add one more player who I think fits into that category, Taylor? For
1: for is me, Luca De La Torre
2: is absolutely mm-hmm. in that yep. stock up in the window and really I thought played well in this game. Coming on late in the second half, he comes on alongside Jordan Morris. And it's those two players that combine for the game winner. It's not just the cross in from Luca De La Torre on the Morris header that really got me excited about him in this game, it was that he was the exact same Luca De La Torre that we saw against Granada. And I, I don't know. I, I want that to sink in for just a second because those are totally different circumstances. Granada is a much worse team than El Salvador. And that field at Q2 Stadium in Austin, it was an entirely different field in playing service in this game at the Estadio Cuscatlan. Like, it's, it's a totally different set of circumstances. And the fact that this Luca De La Torre that we saw against El Salvador was the same one that I think we've seen in pretty much all of his caps for the U.S. men's national team in every game, certainly, that I can remember for him under Greg Berhalter since World Cup qualifying, I think that says a lot about his game. De La Torre, for me, is a lock in Qatar. I don't know that he was quite there. For me, he probably was, but I don't know if he was in Greg Berhalter's mind before this window. Taylor right now with his ability to drive the ball forward, he he does a very good Yunus Musa impression. He's a little better, I think, with with some of those bending balls with that right foot. He's mm. just everywhere. He's got to be so frustrating and annoying to play against. But he's calm on the ball. He progresses it forward. He can he can split lines with his passes. Taylor for me, he's a lock. I think I think at this point, Greg Baralter sees him as a lock too. I thought he was really really good again tonight for the U.S. men's national team.
1: Uh, I agree across the board, and I would say let's talk about that assist for a moment, because throughout this game, including uh, El Salvador's goal, there there seemed to be a lot of difficulty for players in getting spin on the ball. In those crosses, in the shots, in even those long balls, there wasn't a ton of bend on them, and my sort of understanding uh, from my playing experience on a, on a wet field in bad conditions is that a lot of that has to do with the plant foot. And if you are uncertain how much traction you're going to get, if you're worried about losing your footing, you're sort of going to drive through the ball in a more like straight legged, like I'm trying to keep my footing. I don't have a, a ton of traction. I can't get a ton of torque behind it. And so it makes it really hard to get that spin, to get that sort of like that, that just sort of crushing angle on it that you need to get the swerve on the ball. And for Luca De La Torre to come on on a very muddy pitch at that point and still play in that ball and get that bend and put it on a platter for Jordan Morris, who does well. He steps in front, and it's a cushioned header. It's a great header to get it low into the side netting from Jordan Morris. But it's excellent delivery from Luca De La Torre. And I think that he comes in and just is immediately up for it, ready to go, doesn't seem to take that much time getting used to the conditions of the physicality, doesn't get knocked off the ball right away, doesn't sort of get that welcome to the game, son, and then backs off the game. It seemed like he was a very important player, especially when the U.S. were playing down, to to kind of just keep the ball and keep the ball moving and keep probing and looking for opportunities. And I like that he has that eye, that that willingness to try things and create. I'm with you. Luca De La Torre is, is in the squad, certainly for me.
2: I just love his game, Taylor. And and you know this about me. I've loved it since, you know, we started really digging into him this season with Heracles and the Air Divisie. I've even appreciated his game before that, but man, I think he brings just such quality to this US team. And and for me, he is The third number eight on this squad, I think, after McKenney and Musa. Aronson's probably the fourth number eight. That's an interesting question, I think, that's been resolved in this camp. For the longest time, it was Kellen Acosta filling in that job, not because maybe he was the best guy to do it, but just because Berhalter trusts him and and believes that he can cover some of that ground and can just really read the game defensively and be a a presence on set pieces and and just kind of get in in that midfield. And now it seems to me like some of that has been wrestled away from Acosta. Some of that responsibility has been wrestled away from him and has now been given to someone like Luca De La Torre and and maybe to a similar extent, Brendan Aronson, who who plays that role plays that number 8 role completely differently, and we didn't really see him in that role, at least in possession tonight. We haven't seen him in that role since the last game, the last time the U.S. played in San Salvador, which is when he was playing as that full-time number 8 in the first game of World Cup qualifying. We saw him do a hybrid job earlier in this window, and we saw him do sort of a similar hybrid job again tonight. But I think Aronson and De La Torre and maybe Gio Reyna will eventually fall into this category. But at this point, I, I don't know how much the U.S. should be counting on him as he continues to struggle with injuries. At this point, it feels like De La Torre and Aronson have settled into those two backup number eight spots. And Taylor, I feel
1: like that's a pretty decent spot for the U.S.'s midfield group to be in right now. I would agree. The only maybe nuance to that one would just be that it felt like we knew Kevin Acosta was going to be in the squad. If not a starter, he would be there for depth, for experience, for like variety in what he brings but we only end up seeing him in one game in this camp I believe Joe do you have him sort of where he was do you have him as a little bit stocked down coming out of this camp because this felt like a game that we could have seen him start in place of Adams or in place of Musa that we don't I don't know if it means that much other than just that we only see him in one game that doesn't seem like as much as I would have expected coming in
2: I don't think Kellen Acosta's stock is down within the U.S. team in terms of his his place in the squad. I think he will continue to be a key player, at least behind the scenes and in the locker room. And I, I would be shocked, Taylor, if he's not in Qatar with this U.S. group. I will say I think his stock, at least, I, I will say his minutes stock probably went down in this window with De La Torre continuing to impress and with Aronson doing a decent job, or, or, or at the very least, Greg Bralter showing on a on a consistent basis that he is interested in going with that double pivot more and more in possession, which frees up that third central midfielder, or Greg Bralter just changing the possession shape altogether to go with a number 10 and, and a winger, with Aaronson playing the, the tucked-in winger role in this game. So, I, I will say, I think Acosta's minutes probably went down. His World Cup minutes went down after this camp. But I, I think that's a good thing ultimately for this U.S. team. And I still mm. think we'll see Colin Acosta in Qatar. Yeah,
1: uh, Two players who we will definitely see, and I think as a result we haven't talked about as much, Tyler Adams, Christian Pulisic, uh, both of them playing in this game. Pulisic plays the entire game. Tyler Adams goes 80 minutes. Pulisic does a lot on the ball, does a lot of dribbling and running, also gets kicked a fair amount, especially in the opening 20 or 25 minutes. It felt like that was a a sort of statement of intent from El Salvador. Tyler Adams, I thought, had a, a somewhat anonymous game. I can't tell if that's just because of the conditions and everything else. It was harder to sort of keep an eye on everything he was doing. But I think, therefore, like the the moments of him getting megged twice stand out, of him sort of getting caught in transition on occasion, of him having to kind of go for that foul, even if I liked the physicality of slamming down an opposition player. It was also definitely born of frustration of not being able to get the ball back. So I don't think it was, again, the best performance we've seen from Tyler Adams, but we know he's going to be there. We know he's very likely to be the starter, provided he's healthy. So I thought... It was an OK night for Adams, and I thought it was a a pretty good night for Pulisic, all things considered. I still think his delivery was more erratic than I would like to see, especially offset pieces. Uh, but I guess we do sort of get a goal from a corner, even if it's because McKenney's header is saved and then play is recycled. And we should note credit to Luca De La Torre for being on the outside of the box and sort of dropping off into a spot where he can get the outlet ball from uh, Reggie Cannon and then play it in. So I liked his positioning on that one. But back to Adams and Pulisic. Any thoughts on either of them from this evening?
2: Adams I thought was generally good. Those two nutmegs are are tough sequences, but I thought overall yeah. he was relatively influential on the ball. He wasn't breaking lines all the time, but he had a, a handful of nice passes in this game, and he was helping out defensively as he always does. Christian Pulisic, to, to stick on that service for a second, Taylor, uh, it was bad. Like, his set-piece service was bad again. Seventh minute doesn't be the first man on a corner kick. Thirteenth yeah. minute, just poor delivery on a set-piece. Fourteenth minute, bad ball after a set-piece routine with Aronson that, that Aronson plays in the ball back and Pulisic tries to to do something with that right foot. He just doesn't strike the ball all that well for, over, over, like, longer distances. It just isn't there for Pulisic and hasn't been for a while with the U.S. team. Now, the one caveat, I actually don't, want to put a ton of stock in those deliveries in this game in particular because I wasn't at the stadium. I don't know what the wind was like. I don't know how much the rain and the wind were affecting how those balls were hit. Polisic wasn't the only player to struggle with that sort of thing tonight. So there was a caveat there, but still if Polisic's going to continue to take set pieces, you'd like to see a little bit more from him. All that to say, I guess maybe setting that aside, I thought Polisic did have some nice moments in the run of play, some good bits of technical quality uh, I thought he showed some good skill. I don't love him in that number 10 spot. I think there's a reason why he kind of drifts out wide and he and and swap a little bit. And, and maybe he's a little more comfortable on the left. I don't think Pulisic is a great fit for that 10. I don't know that the U.S. has any healthy players right now who are a good fit for that 10 spot. So I didn't love the 4-2-3-1 in general in this game. But But to go back to the beginning of the show, I'm not about to really make any grand sweeping tactical conclusions about the U.S. after this one.
1: I I think it's a fair point, though, about him being central, because it does seem like when he is central and functioning effectively, it's because he has started wide, spotted an opportunity between the lines or just a little gap that he can get into and then have a one-time ball or a turn and a shot. I think that's when he does well centrally. But when he sort of... Meant to stay there and not roam quite as much. I, I don't know if that suits his skill set entirely. That said, I also did like his sort of leading by example. There's one in the 66 minute where he sprints back 25 yards to sort of just poke the ball away from uh, an opposition player, and then he rounds that player and gets the ball back himself and carries it forward. And I thought good effort from him, good off the ball work, and so. Didn't love some of that set-piece delivery, didn't love some of that delivery overall, but still I thought good energy and sort of leading by example from Christian Pulisic. So I think he will continue to be our wide starter, certainly so if Paul Arriola keeps getting suspended. Uh, He's one who I think, I wouldn't say stock up or stock down, but I still think is going to be in that squad or is at least on the... Like sort of like the 25th name on the roster right now. I don't think that red card hurt his chances all that much. He gets a big high five from Greg Berhalter when he goes off. And to me, if anything, it felt like he had been tasked with go in there, shake things up, bring some energy, bring some fight, see what you can make happen. And ends up bringing maybe too much fight, gets that red card for... A combination of like a two-footed challenge with studs too high. Uh, I know Stu Stu wasn't having it in the broadcast. I would say that even with VAR, because the official went straight to the red card, I think that ends up as a red card. The boot's very high. From the referee's angle, it looks like he does it almost intentionally. You could see the stud marks. It was uh, very much pointed to by the entire El Salvador team. So I think Ariola... I would, I would say a deserved red card, even if, if it felt harsh within the kind of structure and narrative of that game, but I still think he does things that Berhalter wants him to do, and I still think he ends up on that plane.
2: I think there's a good chance of that, Taylor. I'm not quite ready to go there yet, mm-hmm. although if, if we're picking that roster today, which we will be in the Bleacher Report <laughs> app, I'm, I'm guessing we're both landing on Paul Areola in that regard. He's not a guy that I think you want playing a lot of minutes in Qatar, but as far as mm-hmm. someone who can fill out the winger depth chart in that squad... I think he is probably the next guy on the list after Pulisic and Aronson and Weah and a healthy Gio
1: Reyna. My only thing I would say, and and this is like an entirely, we, we won't know. I doubt it will ever be discussed, but if it was the case, because it did look like he went up for a header and got a little bit of a shove in the back, no call given. And that's about 30 seconds before that red card challenge. And in between, he has a couple more pretty physical attempts at tackles or kind of throws himself into some challenges. And if that was a bit of retaliation, maybe Burhalter won't love that because if you're throwing him on, I was going to say, I can see him being brought on for the final 10 minutes if the U.S. is up 1-0 in a game and it's about work really hard, frustrate the opposition, wear them down, run with the ball at your feet and make them chase you. I could see him getting those minutes, but maybe, just maybe, there is that idea of, uh, but if I throw him on, is he going to get another red card? I doubt that's a big concern for Burhalter, but maybe just something to keep an eye on uh, in those final two friendlies and how much usage he gets Joe I think we've gone plenty long on this game Uh, any other final kind of parting comments you wanted any other little analysis before we call this one quits to prepare for uh, our next show our live show in uh, fewer than 12 hours
2: we're close Taylor not just to Mm -hmm. that live show but just to the (laughs) World Cup I mean it is so so close it's 180 ish minutes away the U.S. just has those two games in September. I think, wow. generally speaking, this window was a positive for this group. Yep. The results were positive, of course. They didn't lose any games, three wins. Uh, excuse me, two wins and two draws overall in this window. And I think we learned things about this team. We saw more on an individual level. We saw more on a team-wide level. For me, there's a lot of positives from this window overall. I'm excited for September, and more than that, I'm excited for November, Taylor Rockwell.
1: Yeah, man. I didn't really think about the 180 minutes, Joe. That's a great point, point. and now I'm— I would be rubbing my hands together, but it would put me too close to the mic, and that would be uh, not fun noise. Joe Lowry, thank you for talking through the mud and the rain and my meandering points. Uh, I greatly appreciate it. I always love talking to you after U.S. games, even if it's now 1.30 in the morning. Oh, Taylor, you got it. Mail me
2: your muddy laundry. I'll do both of, our, I'll, I'll do both of ours and mail yours back.
1: I appreciate that, my friend. Listeners, I appreciate you all sticking with us. We hope that you will tune in tomorrow, today. Uh, Hopefully you hear this in time uh, for that live BR show in which we're picking the U.S. roster or our version of the U.S. roster. Some other chat in there as well. But for now, Joe, thank you. Listeners, thank you. We will talk to you very soon.